With me, Richard Innes. And me, Steve Meyer. Um, this week we are coming from a slightly different location to the usual. Steve and I normally record this uh, at the Daily Mirror offices. Um, we are in my house, Steve. Very nice. Thank you for Very spacious. Particularly like the lion statues out the front. Thank you very much. Uh, the lion statues, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. How many estate agents listening are, are making that with it? Um, so, yes, if you hear a cat, um, my wife, Lindsay, or my son, Ben, crying, then at least that proves that, that this should work as evidence that we do actually have kids. We are not actors. I've seen Ben. He does exist. He does exist. There you go. So there you go. Um, this week, there we are joined by um, another very special guest, um, Dr. Zishan Qureshi. And I've got your, uh, your, your, your full details here. Dr. Zishan Qureshi, BM, MRC, PCH, MSC, BSC honours, which sounds very, very impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. I've put you right on the spot there, haven't I? Uh, not quite as impressive as Ben. Congratulations. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Um, so, Zishan, you are um, an expert in all things paediatrics. Do you want to tell us a bit about you know, your job and your interaction with uh, kids? And, and, and then we can ask you some questions and we can talk dads and, and kids. Yeah, of course, Steve. So, my name is Zishan and I've been working as a doctor for the last um, seven years or so. I do paediatrics and I really love my job. I get to look after sick babies, I get to look after older children, but I also get involved in all this kind of work, you know, speaking to the public, working through newspapers, working through parliament to try and have that conversation about our children's health on a more uh, national level and a more mm. direct level with the people looking after children and the children themselves. Mm. So have you been treating kids this week? Uh, yeah, I've been working in a community paediatric setting. Um, I've been looking after a few um, refugee children, okay. actually. People that had arrived here from horrendous situations, getting off the back of a truck, and then we've been finding them, we've been speaking to them and working out how to help them. Okay. So really quite rewarding stuff. Okay, so people that maybe dads aren't around. Yeah, I mean, the one of the children I spoke to today... And hadn't spoken to his mum or to his dad or to any relatives for over a year and a half wow. because that's how long it took him to get from Africa to here. Wow. And when you do come into contact with dads in a, in a clinical environment, is there a, you know, what's the difference between the dads and the mums? How, how does that all work? You know, because well, I, you know, Jackson spent the night in hospital and uh, I think we were, felt both equally worried, although I've been the person doing the 111 calls before we entered Twins Hospital, and uh, I'm sure, you know, probably felt as worried as my mum, but as it was the mum, but uh, I wondered how, what your observations are. I think for us as doctors, it almost seems like the mum is a representative of the child, yeah. not the dad. So the majority of the time, it's mums that take their children in to see the doctor. And then often when the parents do come in, uh, together, it's still the mum that does most of the talking. And I think that is quite a shame. I think, you know, both people have got a perspective and it's nice to put that information together because the more information I have as a doctor, then the better I can make decisions when it comes to treating your child. Do, do you find then that the, the father's almost struggling for a, for the role? Because I'm sure Steve would agree with me that I've been there, Lindsay and Ben, you can probably hear in the background, hopefully. Um, you know, we've been to the GP, we've been to the hospital on, on several occasions for various things. And it can feel like, as the dad, 
but you know, the, the, the child is sitting on the mother's lap talking and the doctor is asking mum the questions about the child and you're almost standing there a bit like a spare part thinking, yeah. well, I need to, I need to contribute here. How, how, what, what can I do to help? I need to be taking lunch or do I, so I'm trying to find that spot. Okay. What do I need to do here that can help this situation? Because all I want to do is help. Should I be taking notes? Do I need to be asking other things? I mean, do, do you find that dads often are left standing there looking a little bit lost? Definitely, definitely. I feel like some dads are just twiddling their fingers thinking, why am I here? Because they're almost bypassed from the whole process. I guess a lot of the time it's, you know, well-intentioned. Mums are on maternity leave, they're at home with their child. They're the ones that are dealing with the problem minute by minute, often while the parents are, while the dad is at work. Um, but you know, if something useful can be added, then of course that's in everybody's interests. There are things that I think are helpful that maybe a lot of parents don't do at the moment that they could do. So for example, when um, a parent brings their child to me to talk about vomiting, mm. a simple thing like a diary of when they vomited, what food they've eaten and how things have changed over time mm -hmm. is simple objective data that you can record, which makes it easier for us to make decisions mm -hmm. and i think even if you aren't the person speaking in the consultation you can help in terms of thinking okay how can we best prepare for the consultation yeah and allow the doctor to make the best possible decision with the best possible information so even if he's going in to whether you whether it be a gp or a specialist or wherever you may be even if he's going in with let's say like the notes open on your iphone and you've just kind of taken down a few notes that type of thing where you're saying okay at what point did his temperature spike you know, how many times has he vomited, that kind of thing, that that would be of all all of good use to a doctor. Yeah, really, really helpful. I mean, there are so many times when a parent, uh, the mum has said to me, my child's face um, was twisted to one side for, for five minutes. And, you know, I get really worried because it sounds very serious. And then I say, okay, I'm going to count out. And I want you to tell me how long this actually was. And I'd go, one who by the time I got to seven, they'll be like, oh yeah, maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like five It felt like five minutes. Yeah. So objective data yeah. is really, really helpful. But I mean, you know, I say this um, like it all seems really obvious. I mean, I've been in A&E whereby doctors have taken their children into hospital and there's been so little wrong with them that a medical student could have told you about it. And it's really hard to sense. It's very interesting. So even somebody with, with the qualifications technically to do that assessment mm. as as the parent, as the father, is has kind of lost all objectivity. Exactly. I mean, this was a doctor who'd been a doctor for 10 years, whose wife was a doctor. They brought their child in who is smiling and very happy and had a couple of red spots on their face mm. that passed the glass test. So they went away when you pushed on them. And a medical student could have told mm. you that they didn't need to come to A&E. Mm. But such was the anxiety um, that came with being a parent and the desire to make sure that you don't miss anything. You know, they went to A&E just in case. Well, exactly. It's the most precious thing that you have in your life is that your child and you don't want to make the wrong call because there's all the, for every hundreds of thousands of his day A&E where the child is fine. We don't hear about those. We hear about the times where perhaps and parents didn't follow the signs. That's been in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you hear about the, the nightmare scenarios where, you know, you read back the story afterwards and you think, why didn't you go to hospital? Um, it, but it's hard to make that call, isn't it? You know, when is the, when is the call to, you know, call an ambulance? 
and when do you think okay we'll just give him about half a shot of cowpole and, and wait you know half an hour and see if his temperature comes down um and it was made worse i guess by dr google oh god you dr know. google that must be must be your favorite person dr google that the idea that people now are just self-diagnosing aren't they so everyone's looking on google I and mean, we've all been yeah three in the morning yeah. and you've decided that your child has some horrendous illness because you've made the mistake of googling the symptoms is that every doctor's worst nightmare well i mean to be fair i had a situation recently where there was a child that had a condition called ehlers danlos syndrome and which which involves the connective tissues so things like skin bone um being a little bit more different to to normal and a parent tweeted me before our consultation <laughs> saying check out the new guidelines on ehlers danlos syndrome and I really wanted to just tweet her back and say, thank you, I didn't know about that. <laughs> so, you know, as a, as a parent, there is something very positive you can do in terms of looking up information, not necessarily through random Google searches, but through NHS choices or patient.co.uk. There's information there very specifically designed to be digestible by parents to help you look after your child at home. And I'm a little bit conflicted when I give advice about going to A&E because on the one hand, being in hospital is a horrible thing for a child. It's not the easy option to get an answer. You're often waiting for four or five hours to be seen. You're surrounded by sick children with lots of infections that could be picked up. It's a very noisy, unpleasant environment. And actually, I'd say about 80 to 90% of children that we see in A&E didn't need to be there and we haven't done anything positive for them. But then on the other hand, you don't want to miss any cases of a deteriorating mm -hmm. child and children can look really, really well up until the point that they crash. Um, things that a lot of doctors don't realize is, for example, a temperature in a baby under three months, they could be completely well in every other way but if I see them and I see that temperature I will automatically admit them to hospital give them antibiotics to a drip probably do a lumbar puncture where we take fluid from around the spine because it's really really hard to pick up meningitis yep. from that age group and we don't take any chances those babies can't talk they can't complain of other specific symptoms and if they do get an infection they'll deteriorate very quickly yeah because we they comes out this tiny you're doing this very intense care and you know from the experience of talking to other parents uh, uh, that kids can be sick when they're small they get eye infections they get ear infections they get colds um kids have colic and those are things that kind of accepted that a baby's gonna have i mean in terms of physiology of a of a child at what periods are we talking when you said mentioned three months is that a real area which is a danger area where you've got to be much quicker when they get bigger they become more robust how does how does it work well the good news for most of the dads that are listening is that the period of highest risk is the first 24 hours of life and i've been doing some work with the world health organization and the lancet looking at things like stillbirth and newborn death um and there are approximately two million deaths across the world in that first 24 hour period and you know, in that time period, you always have a healthcare professional with you at the time of birth. And if there's a problem, you get admitted to hospital. Um, and then risk just slowly um, reduces. I think that first three months is a very critical period. And then I think of six months, and then I think of 12 months, then over 12 months in terms of risk 
reduction, partly because the children's immune systems are getting better, um, partly because they're getting bigger and you're getting to know the child a little bit better, and also because you've been well for that period of time, things like um, genetic problems yeah. are less likely to exist, things like birth complications are less likely to now, exist. On the immune systems, now when Jackson was a little boy and we used to take him out to the kind of stay and play environments where basically, for those of you who don't know what stay and play, it's a room full of really old toys, really young babies. Everyone's licking everything, Steve's on everything, <laughs> shoving it in their mouth. And I took the view, which may or may not be right, um, that the more exposure to other kids' germs, if you like, he had, the, the stronger, more robust, perhaps, his immune system might be when he's older. Um, I don't know why I thought that. Is there anything in that? Is that just cod science or is that, you know, is there a... Is there a um, fact behind the, that well um so it's a really good point i mean i grew up as the son of a doctor and i had a very very clean childhood but then i grew up to have hay fever to have eczema to have asthma as did all of my siblings and those are growing and growing in this country because of the fact that we are not exposing people to those normal germs it's interesting what the reaction to that has been. Um, have you heard of something called microbirthing? No, I haven't. So this is a phenomenon that's grown out of uh, wanting to expose people to germs. And when babies are born by cesarean section... Oh, I have heard of this, because Ben was born by cesarean. Yes, yeah, sorry, please carry on I, I, and do explain, because it is quite interesting. So when they're born by cesarean section, they don't go through the birth canal. And going through the birth canal results in being exposed to all the bugs that are down there <laughs> and <Well done. laughs> one uh, bright spark decided that to compensate for this they would take a cocktail of these bugs from that individual mother and then just wipe the baby down with it and now i don't know whether that's going too oh, far so there's one extreme to the other isn't it but there is evidence that if you're born by a cesarean section you're more likely to have asthma in the future so so that kind of exposure might be something positive i think from my point of view I would recommend the basic precautions that you take as an adult in terms of washing your hands, yes. covering your mouth when you sneeze, cooking food well, but not being obsessed over controlling every aspect of your environment. I think that's this is what it all comes down to, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, Ben's now seven months, so Ben has, he's, he's still <laughs> making plenty of noise, as you can hear, but um, he's just sort of at the stage of sitting up. But he's, he's now starting to interact with other children. And I think Lindsay and I both take the view that, well, uh, you know, you just kind of have to use your common sense. And actually, there's no point wrapping up in cotton wool. Actually, almost to an extent, what will be will be. Then that would be my attitude towards that sort of thing in terms of exposure to germs and whatnot. But actually, you just kind of have to accept that that's life and he will naturally be exposed to certain things. So if you're at home, for instance, in your house, which is yeah. a very clean house, and uh, Ben is joking, a piece of food over the side of his uh, high chair, you know the last time you cleaned that floor. Mm. And you know what traffic has gone over that floor. Yeah. If it was a tube carriage, however, you might not be... Yeah, you know, a bit of toast back up onto the... Exactly. I was like, yeah, well, like, he's scraping his food off a tube carriage floor and shoving it in his gob. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if, uh, you know, if a little bit of, a little lump of something goes over there to your yeah. high chair, you, you know, five-second rule, which I know isn't scientist. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will pick, you know, pick up and give it. And let's face it, if you didn't do that, the amount of food that you would get probably go down by about 90%, yeah. <laughs> which is a slightly disturbing thing. Uh, do you know, I, at the risk of jumping around subjects, I just wanted to go back 
to something we were talking that Zishan brought up before about the amount of kids who are in A and E who don't necessarily need to be. And we ha we have personal experience of this with Ben, and it's something that I've not been able to quite wrap my head around because as grown ups, of course, you you're constantly told rightly so, you know, the NHS is under great strain, and you know, go, only go to your GP, only go to A and E if it's absolutely necessary, which is entirely right and proper. And I always try to live by that because the last thing you want to do is is be the person there who's clogging up the NHS for someone. And if you spend any hours in A and E, absolutely, it's not a quick. No, 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 absolutely. So you don't. So I, I am very wary of that. And what I have found very unusual as a first-time dad, as a new father, is the idea that, well, with babies, it's completely the opposite. That the NHS are almost welcoming you, and it's almost like, well, look, if there's any kind of issue, for the love of God, bring your child in. Do not take the chance. And so we had an example where Ben recently, and I might talk about this more in a future podcast. Ben had an operation on his head at Great Ormond Street. Um, we got him home for, for this condition he has with his skull. We got him home, uh, and the very following day, he had a massive spike in temperature and started vomiting. So, you know, you sort of mild panic, uh, and we spoke to Great Ormond Street, who said, right, get him down to your local A&E sharpish, sure we did, it's first thing in the morning. Um, and for a couple of hours, it was panic stations. He was having CT scans, people were talking about bleeds on the brain and whatnot. Turns out, after three days, we were admitted to the hospital, and after three days, he had just picked up gastroenteritis. That was the, that was the conclusion, which everyone came to. So actually, he didn't need to be in there. There was no there was no kind of special medication given to him. He had a drip. He had antibiotics. All stuff we could have done at home, I'm sure. Um, but I was kind of blown. I was almost apologising to nurses when we were leaving. I've kind of taken up three days of your very valuable time. You were incredibly busy and hardworking, and you actually haven't had to do anything. And they were all saying to me, well, don't be silly, that's what we're here to, you know, it's a baby, you have to, you have to take care, and it's quite an odd, but as I say, it's so different to the attitude you have as a grown-up, and the tr uh, and the, that, that kind of culture is, is really, really different. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, I agree with you, and I think it's very hard, because nobody wants to be responsible for missing a sick child, and nobody wants to say to a parent, we don't take you seriously. And I mean, I remember a patient that I saw up in Edinburgh and they came in with uh, being a bit uh, vomity, crying a lot. Um, and we thought it was probably just colic and it sounded just like colic. But mum was really, really anxious. And she said, like, look, this doesn't seem like colic to me. I can't really articulate exactly what's going on, but I'm very worried about my child. And, you know, I had two options. One, I could have said, this is my medical assessment of the child. Go home, don't waste services. You need to respect our clinical decision. Or I could have said, okay, this is a mum that really cares about their child. They've been observing them on a day-to-day -day basis. They've got another child as well that they're comparing to. Maybe there's something I might be missing. Let's observe the child for a little bit longer. And turned out within a couple of hours of observing them, the child's heart rate went up to over 250 and their heart had gone into an abnormal rhythm. And I was like, okay, you can stay. <laughs> <laughs> Pull up a chair. <laughs> and you're going to be there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we admitted them and we treated that abnormal rhythm and then we referred to the specialist paediatric cardiologist, so the heart specialist for children. They got started on some medication. And, yeah, that was an example of the parental intuition being very powerful. It's a it's a really important part of the diagnostic. It's interesting. You just used the phrase parental intuition. Obviously, the phrase that we all hear is mother's instinct, you know, maternal instinct. Yeah, mother's intuition. Do you have you had examples like that where it might be the father who said, 
you know, look, I, I just have a feeling about this and I know something's not wrong, not right with my child, because it's the type of thing you'd expect a mother perhaps to do. But do you, do you ever see that with a father kind of taking the same? That's really uh, interesting, Richard, because I don't speak to as many fathers. Yeah, but my, this is part of the, with the issue we're discussing. But from my recollection, fathers don't say... I've just got a feeling I can't explain it. They well, always have an explanation. It, it is. And as soon as I've said it, I thought that doesn't sound very manly. It doesn't sound very masculine. I think, to say. I think it all, not everything leads back to the amount of time dad spends caring for child. But in the time that Jackson went to hospital was when I was on shared parental leave. So I was the three months at home with him. So I was the one when mum had gone to work who was observing his temperature, taking his temperature phoning 111 speaking to and we'll come on maybe to the benefits or not of 111 because I've had varying reports and I ended up speaking to a paramedic and they said just to be on the safe side you know go to AME we spent a long time in AME we was given some drugs um, which couldn't bring his temperature down so that we can't send him home because we don't know what's causing the temperature um, and then it turned out he had some kind of well, it ultimately had some kind of virus, but there was a lot of it, it took a long time. But it was me, the dad, who was in AME with him on my own till my wife got back from work. And um, but that's probably because I was the I was you were bearing you were a bit of the exception to that. Someone who's done shares to rent with you. But I guess what different what would be good is if dads would the more involved dads are, the more observations they have of their children, and therefore the more able they are to. Have perhaps have an opinion and more put forward their opinion or on what one is wrong with the, the child. Is that is that probably tricking that would knock on in, in terms of you see more dads? I think the important thing for me is that there's always uh, information available to make the kind of decision required to do what's best for the child. In terms of paternal involvement I mean from my perspective so I'm working in a community paediatric setting at the moment I'm dealing with a lot of children with behavioral problems and with you know autism ADHD type issues and one thing I've noticed is that for a huge proportion of them they've had absent father figures either because of separation or and um, because the dad is really busy doing other things and I think that in and of itself is a reason to get more involved it's really good to have that second role model have a male role model and show that there's two people on a strong base that really care about you and are really invested i think the phrase parental intuition is something like a little bit better than maternal intuition because i really value what mums do but also there's a lot that dads can do that they're not doing right at the moment and that can be quite a guiding principle when it comes to parenting the issue you talked about um steve with regard to uh temperature and going to and it's very easy for people to say, I'm sure everything's fine, but yeah. to the hospital just to be checked out. Yeah. There's a GP in Oxford that did that. And his patients all loved him because when they went to A&E and there's nothing wrong, they'd say, oh, Dr. Smith was right to say nothing was wrong. But if something was wrong, they'll be like, oh, he was right. He yeah. knew what was going on. Yeah. But, you know, if you're at home, you have a temperature um, and a bit of a runny nose. And you know, you'd say you told me that over the phone, I'd say, don't worry about it. But if you go to A&E, you have that temperature and then you've got a documented increase in heart rate. Yes. It's probably just related to the temperature. But because you're in A&E, you and don't want to send someone with a high heart rate up because it might be from a bloodborne infection. And also the nature of you've got to hand your 
little boy or little girl who's a bit distressed because they've got a cold are being handed over to a complete stranger mm. to then performing observations on them, which is going to raise their anxiety levels. They'll be stressed, they'll cry, their heart rate will go up. Yeah. So it becomes really difficult, but every paediatrician I've spoken to have talked about not just uh, parents that have kind of missed symptoms in their child of a severe infection, but also doctors that have mm. seen them, sent them home, and they've come back with crashing sepsis, so bloodborne infections, the next day or the day after. And it's really an awful feeling when it happens as a doctor, but devastating for anyone as a parent. So it's I'm, really difficult. I'm interested in that as a doctor, just in the idea of it, because that, mu- that must happen where you have a child is presented at all these times. You, As you say, you're always on the safe side, always on the safe side. And there's always going to be, I suppose, for the vast majority of doctors, there's going to be that one case where maybe you made the wrong call or, you know, and through no fault of your own, you've said, go on, I'm sure he's fine. And then the next day the child comes back in. How, how does, how difficult is that for a doctor? What, what exactly is the thought process there? Cause you must, it must be awful. It's like, it's your worst nightmare is in terms of your job, isn't it? It's really um, difficult, Richard, because a babe, a child could come into hospital. They could have a temperature that has just emerged for the first time. It's not clear where the temperature has come from. And um, that could turn into a cold or that could turn into a serious life-threatening event. 99% of cases are going to be completely fine. Mm. But when you see that child, you need to know, do the parents know when to come back? And are you happy that they're stable right now? And so for me, especially as I've got more senior as a doctor, I just try and have a honest conversation with the parents as equals saying, okay, look, this is what I think is going on. This is kind of the worst case scenario. This is what I think is going to happen. And in the context of that, this is what you should look out for and when you should come back into hospital. And then you know, sometimes there can be difficult decisions to be, to, to make. You know, a child could be borderline for admitting them to hospital and giving them antibiotics. And then often I have that conversation with the parents. You know, What level of risk do you think is reasonable to take in this situation? Because you always want to be, as the pe- as the parent, what you look what you're looking for. And you may feel differently about it, Steve. I don't know. But you always, well, you almost want a doctor to give you a definitive. This is what you need to do, or this is what we're not going to do. And actually, what I'm realising now, you know, having had quite a lot of interaction with with doctors and nurses and GPs, um, with Ben, is that actually it's, it's never that clear cut. There's always a discussion to be had, and actually, I'm starting to appreciate that. The, the parent has to be involved yeah. in that discussion because the doctor is, is, the, is the person with the information yeah. and tell you, but it is at the end of the day, it's always going to be your call. Yeah. It's always going to be a car where you could do this, you could do this, and you have to... I think it depends on your own experience of medical profession as well. Your own... Yeah, you're going to have your own physicians. Spent a lot of time in hospitals. Now, both my parents were in hospital for long periods of time. You see some of the things that could be smoother and you have more confidence in the dynamic of a hospital or less confidence in the dynamic of a hospital. And also the same with your doctor. If you are in a lucky position in the country where you've got a family doctor and you've seen the same GP your entire life and now your child's seen that GP, if you were going to a practice where you see a different GP every time you go, you maybe have a different level of confidence in mm. what you're being told because you know that that GP hasn't got a relationship with your child. They're just working off the basis of notes perhaps. So perhaps the the, the, the the intuition doctor's intuition changes slightly as well. And I've certainly been in A and E and been willing there's a point at which you knew, okay, things are okay, we need to get out of here now, you know, because it's not making him better, isn't he's 
four o'clock in the morning, he needs to sleep, he's very anxious, he hasn't eaten, you know, there's nothing wrong with him that we that, that, that we're worried about, that that worrying about. And so we ended up not so we were we were, we were admitted, but then we sort of went home and came back for the drugs. And it was sort of like a halfway house where everyone was getting what they needed out of the relationship. But I do think, you know, I do think, you know, if you've not been to the hospital very often and you are scared of the condition that your child's in, then obviously your reaction is going to be completely different. And then there's other things as well, like, you know, how far away are you from the hospital if things do deteriorate? How experienced are you as a parent? How busy are you with other commitments? Yes. You know, a child with diarrhea and vomiting for example yep. you want to feed them small amounts of fluid regularly but that's quite time intensive and it can be Security. difficult especially if you've got lots of children and if that's failed then children need fluid through a drip yep. and you know you need to know that parents are able to do that at home for them to safely go home sometimes parents aren't able to cope not necessarily for faults of their own and you know the hospital can help in that scenario so it's a very complex scenario and I'm learning that it's not just about what is the diagnosis and what is the treatment it is what is the situation right now and let's include the perspective of the mum the child and the dads and any other family members to try and do what's best for that child in their specific situation I think Rich and I's probably experiences of parenting is it's it's easy when there's two of you looking after a child so the if you go to hospital and there are two of you there then it's good. That's going to be an easier process. Or if you go to a doctor's and there's two of you there, because one of you's looking after the child and the other one is listening to what's being said, or you can articulate what's happened. Or if you're like Rich and I do with the podcast, if one of you feels like the other one's missed a bit out, you go back and go, well, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that's absolutely probably the way that it works when you go to uh, to see a doctor or a other, other medical professional. Um, yeah. At this point, actually, just to, just to butt in, if anybody has any thoughts on any of this, please do feel free to email us. We have a, a, an email address which is open and ready for use. Um, first time dads at trinitymerrow.com. Um, if you have any thoughts on what you're hearing today from, from Zishan or Steve or myself, um, any questions you have, any thoughts on future podcasts and what we should be doing, please do drop us a line. Um, or, you know, you can leave uh, something in the review section of iTunes and, and we will pick them up and we will look and we will listen. Now, I was talking to a dad before I came to meet you today. Um, and I was asking him, we're going to meet this paediatrician guy. Have you got anything that you want to ask him about? And he said, can kids make you ill? <laughs> because we <laughs> do. That's a bigger question. Children go off to nursery. They pick up all sorts of bugs and stuff. Does it get transferred back onto mum and dad? Or are you going to be constantly ill because you've got, because this is about new dads, first time dads. Uh, are you going to have colds all the time? This particular dad I was talking to had a very unusual scenario where his daughter got whooping cough and gave it to him, which I think in an adult can be quite a serious illness. And he was pretty wiped out for quite a while on it. But that's the that's the question, you know, how how much, well, and what can you do apart from washing your hands? Well, it's funny you should say that because paediatricians notoriously all get ill in the winter because that's when so many sick kids come in with infectious diseases. <laughs> it's the industry standard, is it? It's the industry standard, and it's a bit unfortunate because that's <laughs> when you need the most doctors to be uh, be around. But, you know, you can't really expect children, particularly children in the emergency department, to be uh, following full infection control protocol. Sure. Um, but 
yeah, all, all you can do is just teach your children those basic, simple things like washing their hands, like cough, covering their mouth when they cough, um, and and hope hope for the best. But you will pick something up, and um, you won't be able to tell them off for it. So, and we've talked and we've talked earlier about uh, how you might improve a child's immune system, or they might be exposed to different microbes or whatever. It, do you think it gets better as a parent? If you're coughing, spluttering, sniffling for the first year, do, do your do your immune system as an adult can that be improved later, or are you just that's it? If you're if you're sort of a sickly parent, you're going to be a sickly parent. Well, you're going to have to get used to your children pick up these infections. So at those early ages, it's maybe ten to twelve infections a year because they're being exposed to all these new um, viruses on a regular basis in the school setting. Um, but yeah, it gets it gets better with time as the immunity of the child goes up as their infection control procedures, i.e., washing their hands and covering their mouth, um, goes goes up. Things get better with time. So it's yeah, it's there is hope. So that's the thing dad dad can do, isn't it? So if you're not around during the day and you you are there in the evening and you're there at weekends, you can improve things by making sure your kids wash their hands and making sure they catch their colds and sniffles in the tissue, making sure they, when they go to the toilet, they get hygienically. And also when you're doing nappy changing, I guess, as well, and when you're preparing food, washing your hands. Yeah, it's, it's your own personal hygiene as well, isn't it? it, it I, I have, I'm just absolutely fundamental about this. When I come in the door and I, I get the tube home from work, and for anyone who doesn't live in London who listens to this, um, the the London Underground is disgust. I think that's the only word you could use. But I'm not a germaphobe, but good lord, uh, when when I get in the house, before I even go near Ben, I go and wash my hands thoroughly because if you've been holding bars in the tube and touching the seats and whatnot, God knows what's on your head. But I suppose you have, you have a responsibility as a parent to try and avoid bringing these things home with you as well. The other question I was going to ask as well was: Are we sort of nearing the end? Rashes. This seems to be the thing that sends parents into meltdown the most because of a very successful meningitis awareness campaign like in terms of rashes can you tell us about rashes please when when, when do you freak out but if that's the fundamental question is just that things freaks out yeah it's been said everywhere else but tell us about rashes sure so one of the things about rashes is there's a particular rash associated with a particular infection called meningococcal sepsis and this is a rash a red rash which you can notice anywhere on the body and if you put a glass on it or a tumbler on it the rash doesn't go away and that's something an empty glass <laughs> an empty glass an empty transparent empty transparent glass beerless glass um it doesn't go away and if that happens, then you should take your child to the emergency department and they'll more than likely have some blood tests done to look into whether they've got this potential serious condition. However, the kind of bigger, wider question is when do you go to the emergency department? And regardless of whether there is a rush at all, if you believe your child has got a life or limb threatening injury, then go to A&E, it's available 24-7 and you will always be seen. And you'll be seen quite quickly by the nursing staff that triage the complaint. And 
if that problem is deemed serious enough, then you'll be seen straight away mm. by a paediatrician. And a lot of it is really common sense. You know, is your child breathing a lot faster than normal? Do you see the ribs of your child when they're breathing because they're breathing so quickly? Are they cold and clammy when you touch their hands? Are they less alert? Are they drowsy compared to normal? Have they completely stopped drinking? Children often stop eating when they're feeling sick, but if they're not drinking at all. A lot of similar stuff to adults. Similar stuff yeah. to adults, exactly. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think there's a lot to be said about just intuition when it comes to parenting. I think you can get really obsessed. I think doctors can be quite guilty of this, of controlling each and every aspect of your child's environment, everything they eat, everywhere they go, all the germs they're exposed to. But actually your child is unique and respond to them and see how they're doing. If you don't feel like something's right, then get help and we'll always be there. Mm, mm. Good. And in terms of going places for advice, the NHS has got a website, hasn't it, which has got loads of symptoms and explanation of, you know, different kinds of child illnesses um, and what to do. And that's fairly, you know, uh, uh, strong advice and, and, and reliable. So that's a good place to go, is it? When I see patients in the emergency department, I usually go to a place called patient.co.uk and they have specific leaflets for most conditions that are written in language that parents can understand and not just simple English language but simple Romanian, Russian, Kazakh. So there is the opportunity for you to know what's going on um, from the comfort of your own home Mm -hmm. and what to do and I think that's a really good first point Mm -hmm. to to go to. Because obviously something you're often told is 111. Mm-hmm. as an option uh, as Steve alluded to earlier I think people do have varying experiences with that because I think the, the biggest issue with that is you call 111 with an issue uh, my child is presenting x y and z my my issue with it is you know what you're going to be told before you even before you even make the phone call you know what's going to be told because you're not talking to a doctor of you know sort of your qualification you're talking to somebody else who is doing their best but is reading off a those actually some sort of spreadsheet so what to you is the is the use of 111 it's really difficult, um, Rich, and it's a really good question because I, as a doctor, am usually told not to give advice over the phone. Yeah. And if someone is worried, to tell them to come to A&E or to see their GP. I think we're still trying to work out what the best use of one is because, you know, if someone rings up and says, I'm really worried about my four-day-old, then invariably... Go to A&E. They will be <laughs> told to go to A&E yeah. or they'll come in on, in an ambulance to A&E. And, you know, that's not necessarily the wrong thing to be advised through this helpline, but we're seeing a lot of children come into A&E via ambulances that don't necessarily need to come by that route. But 111 is a useful advice line if you're why there's something wrong with your child but you don't think they're in immediate danger and they're not deteriorating in front of you and there's a flexibility to it that the internet doesn't have Mm. where you will i guess get put through to a paramedic as i was who is a trained professional uh and you can have a bit more of a conversation about the symptoms rather than necessarily just relying on yeah what is fixed answers or a fixed pamphlet or online? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I suppose because we are we are coming towards the end of our time, we don't want to go forever. But I suppose the the last question I'll have for you is, Eugene, given the name of this podcast and what we're talking about here, and you've sort of discussed it a little bit earlier, but 
in terms of your kind of clinical interactions with parents, if there was one thing you would say that Dan specifically could do more of, what what would it be? Because obviously we've talked about the fact that mums are obviously in many, in the vast majority of cases, the primary caregiver. What would be the one thing that you, if you were given a bit of advice to dads in terms of their kids' health, what would you suggest they should be doing? Oh, that's hard. Because I would say three things. Go, you can go for it. Go for it. Go for it. So the first thing I'd say is related to smoking. I think the number one thing and the simplest thing you can do to reduce the risk of your child getting um, chest infections, reduce the risk of sudden unexpected death in infancy is to stop smoking. And children, uh, parents will smoke and they'll say, we only do it outside. And then I'll say, well, the smoke's still on your clothes. And they'll say, well, we shower. And then I'd say, okay, it's still on your breath. And you don't wash your lungs when you're in the shower, do you? So that is something really kind of simple. I know it's difficult, but like, trust me, I know that it changes the outcomes for children. So it's something quite simple to do. And the second thing is remember the importance of looking after yourself. Everyone talks about postpartum depression in mums, but it's actually becoming increasingly recognised in dads because you have to deal with all the emotions and the time and financial strains of having a child as well as managing the relationship with the new mum. And I've seen statistics saying that one in three dads have concerns about their mental and then the third thing, which I think is just practical, is recording information. So that consultation where maybe your partner is doing all the talking, just take notes and record everything so it's written down. You know what the doctors advise, what the next steps are, and when to come back into hospital. At home, when things are going so well with your child, write down exactly what's happening, what time it's happening, so that the doctor has the best possible information. But, you know, the most important... Very good checklist of tips. But the most important thing is what your listeners are doing right now and actually just wanting to be a good dad and I think that's the biggest most positive step of all yeah it's a suitable particularly as you may be able to hear my son screaming his lungs out upstairs uh, god knows why but I'm sure he's fine uh, <laughs> uh, anyway so um, yes from this rather special uh, edition of first time dads um, from my house which is a very weird thing to say on a podcast but there we are um, thank you very much to Zijan for coming in. Thanks a lot. Um, offering all his uh, insight and expertise. It's been very, very useful. I'm sure you'd agree. And um, yeah, uh, please keep uh, listening, liking, reviewing us on iTunes, telling your friends, telling your pals, telling telling the world about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time. Cheerio.